The first part of our reading is 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting at verse 1, which is on page 285, if you've got one of these red Bibles. Um, If you haven't got one and you want one, now's the moment to go to the front or the back to pick one up. Um, I'll just give you a minute to find the page. Page 285, 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting at verse 1. That's 1 Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 15, starting at verse 1, page 285. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Keep your Bibles open on that page for the second reading in a bit. So continuing in 1 Samuel 15, this time on page 286, we'll start at verse 12. Page 286, 1 Samuel 15, starting at verse 12. At the end of this reading, it won't come up on the screen, but I will say this is the word of the Lord, and we'll all say thanks be to God. 1 Samuel 15, starting at verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them up from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. 
Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Saul died, he did not, until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a seat. It's a great song, isn't it? It's a very stirring song. And a great reminder to us that when we come to hear from God in his words, we come to a holy God. Uh, And some bits of his word, like this passage, it's quite a long passage. It is a very challenging passage in many, many ways. So I think it's good for us at the start to come to that holy God and ask for his help. So let me pray. Father, you are indeed a holy God. And yet you want a relationship with us, which is why you speak to us. In your word, we find some bits difficult, we find some bits challenging, like this one, no doubt. 
Open our ears and open our hearts this morning because you have caused this to be written for a reason that we may know you, our holy God. And we pray that that will be the result. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, There are some challenging bits, and we'll we'll get to them as we uh, move through the passage. Uh, But I want to start by um, putting a question out there. And I want to do this by... uh, On the BBC website a few years ago, uh, there was an article about an atheist church. Uh, And it met for a few years, actually. I think it has stopped meeting now. Uh, It's still on the website. You can read about it. Uh, A group of people who decided that they quite liked the idea of... They didn't believe in God, but they quite liked the idea of gathering together on a Sunday morning... Uh, And they met together as a group, and they maybe shared food together, and they had this sense of community, and they'd hear inspiring talks about science and life, the universe and everything, to connect them to something bigger than themselves. It gave them this sense of well-being and and purpose, and they'd sing songs, secular songs, uh, together, and it it really buoyed them up and and gave them good feeling about themselves, the world, connected them, like I say. And when you think about it, that's a lot of the reasons sometimes people give for coming to a Christian church. So they were in an atheist church, we're here today in a Christian church, and you sort of think, well, is there any difference? Do we just get the same things out of them? Do we need the Jesus bit or not? Some people, of course, on a Sunday morning don't bother going to any building to meet with people. They get um, something out of doing, like, exercise. So the, the Guardian columnist, Jamie Doward, talks about running more or less as his religion. When he had a hard time in his life, he, he started training for a marathon, and he found that that really helped him mentally, physically, socially. He met with other people at a running club, and he said this, "'It's perhaps no surprise the popularity of running is increasing as that of religion declines.'" The two appear similar, both delivering their own forms of transcendence. When he's out there in the world running, he just feels connected in some way to something much bigger than himself. Wow. And so I guess our question is, why do we need Jesus rather than just a running club? When I started work at KPMG, uh, one of the partners there you know, talked to me about who I was and where I came from, and I mentioned that I go to church. He said, that's great, Tim. That's important. You need that in your life. Me, I go rock climbing. That's how I get what I need at the weekend to, to detach from work, to give me this sense of meaning and purpose. You do church, I do rock climbing. Why do I need Jesus, not just a running club? Why do I need Jesus, not just rock climbing? What can Jesus give me that those things can't? That's the question I want to put into our minds as we begin this chapter. Uh, And I think chapter 15 will help us with that. Uh, Last time in chapter 14, we we sort of saw the end of Saul's story to some extent. And we're moving now into a new phase of 1 Samuel where the the kingship's going to transfer from Saul uh, to David. And chapter 15 sort of gives us the final nail in Saul's coffin, the final reason why the kingship must be removed from him. Uh, And the big idea, we can't look at it all, but the big idea we're going to trace through this chapter is the theme of obedience. Because that really is the crux, that really is the key issue in this chapter. And we're going to look at it under three headings. And the first is this, the call to obedience, the call to obedience. So Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. 
So Samuel is reminding Saul how things work in Israel amongst God's people. Now, we've seen this diagram a few times, I think, in the series. God rules the people of Israel, and he's appointed a king under him, and the king's job is to listen to God, obey God, and help the people also live in God's will. And so that's the dynamic of the people of God, and Samuel reminds Saul of that. And then we move on into verse 2. So here's the command. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now it is a clear command. Saul clearly understands it because he goes off with his army. So he's understood what God has said. He knows what is required of him. He knows what God wants him to do. So it's a clear command. But at this point, we need to pause. Because if we are honest in any way, we know and we will admit that we find commands like this very difficult. We're not quite sure how to make sense of them, how to understand them. The Bible tells the story of a God of love. And you think, what is this doing? In the Bible, a command like this, it feels horrible. One of those passages, if we're honest, we're probably a little bit embarrassed about at times. So we need to pause and just for a moment take a little sidebar, sidestep, and think about how do we make sense of a command like this. Now, the first thing I want to say is I don't really have time to go into everything. We've got a short space of time this morning. But tonight, uh, Andy Meeson, who's a vicar in Blackburn Diocese and used to be a member here at Platt, is going to come and and spend an evening with us on this topic of Old Testament violence. If this is a a big question, a burning question for you, can I really encourage you to come back for that? Uh, Andy's great, he's sensitive, gentle, but he's also uh, thought through these issues uh, a lot. I'm sure it'll be a, a really helpful time. But I know not everybody will be able to come back tonight Uh, and so I just wanted to say a few quick things to try and help us put this command in a in a bigger context to try and help us when we come across passages like this because I I think there are some truths about God that we should remind ourselves of when we come in front of commands like this Uh, four that I want to share with us first God is creator And that means all life actually belongs to God. He made us. He gave us life. It is his gift to us. And so in a way that no human being does, God does actually have the right to say what happens to life. And God has a right that we never have, which is to take life away. Now, that's got to have a bearing on how we understand commands like this. It might challenge us, but God is not like us. He is the creator. He has certain rights that we don't. Second point, God is just. Verse 18 of chapter 15 calls the Amalekites a wicked people. And we get an example of their wickedness in the chapter as uh, Samuel reminds Saul what they did to the Israelites. Now, in Exodus... The Israelites flee from the megalomaniac Pharaoh who had enslaved them and now wants to destroy them. They are refugees, they are hungry, they are homeless, they are weak, and they are vulnerable. And the Amalekites see them. And what do they do? Great chance to make profit, they say. We'll attack them. We'll steal all their belongings. We'll take some of them off as slaves. These are the ancient equivalent of people traffickers. People who see the weak, 
and the vulnerable merely as a means to profit. The other things we know about the Amalekites from what we've dug up and, and discovered through historical evidence is that they were a profoundly violent and wicked people. They preyed on the weaker nations around them. They even sacrificed their own children in pagan religious worship. They were a wicked people. God doesn't command that his people wipe out everybody they see. So when God makes this command, we need to remember God is just. He does it for good reasons. Thirdly, God is wise. God knows the right times for things, and he knows the consequences both of letting the Amalekites continue and of bringing them to an end. Only God knows the future in that way. He tells Abraham he's going to wait 400 years. He gives them time and space to repent, to change their ways. But as he does that, he is demonstrating that they don't change their ways. And so they need to be dealt with. They need to be dealt with before they become too numerous and cause real devastation to everyone else. And if you think that's dramatic, one of the descendants of King Agag survives... Uh, and down the line, a few centuries later, we read about a descendant called Haman in the book of Esther. And he gets into a position of power. And what does he do with that power? He plots to wipe out all the Jews. God knows. God is wise. He knows what the results will be of not acting in this way. And final thing to take note of is God is holy. I think it's easy to be troubled, and understandable to be troubled, about the command of complete destruction. But it is uh, worth noting that what God is saying to the Israelites there is, you're not to become like the Amalekites. When the Amalekites attacked another people group, they did it for profit. They did it to get rich. They would take the plunder. And God says, you're not doing this to get rich. You're doing it because it's right. It is part of my holy justice that the wicked face judgment. Now, I'm sure those four points do not answer every question. If you still have questions, come back tonight or come and see me after the service. I'm happy to talk further about it. But I think those four things are helpful to us when we understand this, trying to understand this command, trying to get it into a bigger perspective. Well, That is the call to obedience. Saul is given a clear command, and in the next few verses he sets off to fulfill the command of the Lord. Uh, But then we come to our second point, which is the failure of obedience. Because Saul does go and he attacks the Amalekites, and it all looks okay. But then verse 8, he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Well, that violates God's command, doesn't it? Uh, And Saul and the army, verse 9, spared Not just Agag, but the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. The very thing God didn't want them to be, just like the Amalekites killing for profits, is what they've become. They've plundered them. And so Samuel is sent by the Lord to confront Saul about his act of disobedience. Saul's response to being confronted is quite telling, I think. Four times he is confronted and four times he sort of tries to wriggle out of it. First of all, he says, um, verse 13, I've done it, don't worry. Don't worry, nothing to see here. I followed the Lord's instructions. And and Samuel says, did you really, Saul? You sure about that? Why can I see all these nice 
sheep and cattle around. And so Saul decides another tactic. He's going to shift the blame, verse 15. Well, um, it was the soldiers. Uh, They got the stuff from the Amalekites. They spared it. But we destroyed everything else, minimizing his disobedience. But Samuel is not satisfied, and he continues to press the point. He wants Saul to admit, but Saul won't admit I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission. I completely destroyed them. I only brought back Agag. And then the soldiers, they they were guilty. They were responsible. Minimizing, deflecting, denying his disobedience. Trying to wriggle out of it. Eventually, he realizes he's not going to get away with it. So he says, no, okay, I have sinned, verse 24. I was afraid. I gave in. But he's still trying to minimize it. He says, okay, Samuel, it's not a big deal. You and me, we'll go in front of the people. We'll offer a sacrifice. It'll all be okay. It'll look great. This is Saul. Saul who cares about outward appearance more than the heart. Saul, a master of politics and spin. Saul, the PR man. There's a little bit of Saul in most of us, isn't there, when we're confronted with our sin? We love to minimize and deflect and and try and cover it over and pretend it's not that bad. But Samuel does not let him get away with it. He needs Saul to know this is serious. And, And you see how serious in that little section, verse 23 and 24, little poem that Samuel recites. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. Rebellion is like the sin of divination. Arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul, part of his spin and PR was to say, oh, the only reason we kept any of them was to to sacrifice, to worship. It was really for God's sake that we did it. Which I think we have to say is a lie, given Saul's sort of track record here. And Samuel says, you don't understand how serious disobedience is, Saul. Much more serious. God cares a lot more about your obedience than your sacrifice. Why so? Well, it's really this. Prevention is better than cure. Sacrifices were something God graciously gave to cover sin. When we sin, there's a sacrifice we can offer that will make us right again with God's. But the reason we need sacrifices is because we disobey. So, of course, it would be far better if we never disobeyed, if we obeyed instead, because then there'd be no need for the sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice because prevention is better than cure. The Bible is clear that disobedience is a spiritual disease that rips its way through creation, causing havoc. Causes havoc with our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with the world. Uh, There's a picture here of a potato blight, just to show you a disease ripping its way through a vegetable. You see how it's ruined it. It's no good now for anything. Any of us, uh, I'm sure many of us in this room will have had uh, either ourselves or family members who've wrestled with diseases, and you see the impact it has, the way it tears through their bodies or their minds. Well, Samuel says to Saul, disobedience is a spiritual disease. It rips through the whole of reality, causing havoc and carnage. It's the, it's the root of our violence and bloodshed that we see all over the world, the brokenness, uh, the fractured relationships with God and with one another. 
So obedience is better than sacrifice because disobedience is a desperate disease that has ripped its way through creation. And God's plan for the world is to make it right. God chose Abraham and his family and said, you're going to be my people and I'm going to use you to make a better world. A world that is no longer ravaged by disobedience. And that family has now become Israel. And Saul has now been chosen as king. But if they're going to bring in a better world, they need to be obedient. And so the king needs to be obedient because if he's not, we're just going to get into the same cycle. All the same trouble that came through disobedience will come again. There are many echoes of Genesis 3 in this passage, including the way Saul tries to shift the blame, like Adam did, like Eve did in the garden. Uh, There are echoes as, as rebellion is like the sin of divination. Divination is wanting access to knowledge, which is, of course, what they did in the garden. Arrogance, like the evil of idolatry. If you disobey God, it's ultimately because you think something or someone else matters more, so you obey them instead just like Adam and Eve in the garden. So the snake's word was more important. And from that root, all the fallout of disobedience has come. And if God is going to make a better world, he cannot have a leader for his people who disobeys because then the cycle will continue. And that's why verse 26, I will not go back with you, Samuel said. You have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you as king. You are not fit to rule the people of God, Saul, because you disobeyed. You are not fit to rule the people of God. One failure, even once, means you are not fit to be the king of God's people. And so verse 28, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. We need a better king than you, Saul. Now, we know that the one who is coming, and next week we'll meet them, is King David. King David, who wrote Psalm 40. And Psalm 40 shows you that King David got it. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. I'm ready to listen to you, God. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require, Then I said, here I am, I've come. It's written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. David gets it. Obedience is better than sacrifice. The failure to obey is serious. It means you are not a valid king in God's kingdom, Saul. God's people need a leader who will obey. Which brings us finally to the paradox of obedience. And it is a paradox. Because yes, the kingdom is going to pass from Saul to David. And David is described as a man after God's own heart. A man who loves to listen to God and obey him. And he does really well in 1 Samuel for a while. And even on into 2 Samuel, he keeps obeying. But, but then, halfway through 2 Samuel, there's a problem. David commits adultery and murder. And that's a disaster because he is not the obedient king the people need. He fails just like Saul did. And if one failure, even once, 
means that you are not fit to be the king, you can't lead God's people into the new world that God has promised, then does that mean that all God's plans will fall apart? And that's why we need Jesus, not just a running club. That's what Jesus can give us that rock climbing can't. He can be the fully obedient, perfect king God's people need to lead them into God's new world. A world no longer stained by sin and rebellion. He can fulfill Psalm 40. He and only he can live that out. And indeed the New Testament quotes Psalm 40 in Hebrews chapter 10 and says this. Sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Jesus said, here I am, I've come to do your will. Jesus sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews picks up on that psalm and says, yeah, Jesus lived it out perfectly, and only Jesus lived it out perfectly. And Jesus was fully obedient every time, never failed once. And Jesus was obedient as a sacrifice. And by that sacrifice, his blood covered over all sin, made right every act of disobedience for all those who trust in him. They were made his people, who he will take into his new world, free from the stain of sin, free from the disease of disobedience. Can you see why we need Jesus? See, it is a paradox, because David isn't the king they need, but he points to the one who is. But there is one more paradox in this passage, and I think it goes to something that I know a lot of house groups have been talking about, a lot of questions around why does God do this with Saul? What's the point? Uh, why uh, is, is this going on? Has God just changed his mind? Has it gone one way and then the other? And he's just decided, oh, actually, Saul's not a great idea after all. Uh, if you read verse 11, I regret the, the Hebrew word nikam. It means to repent or I am sorry that I've made Saul king. Well, that sounds like God has changed his mind. He thought Saul was okay, and then he thought, nah, he's not the one. And verse 35 the Lord regretted, same words. I'm sorry, I, I repent of the fact that I made Saul king. But in between the two, in verse 29, there's a paradox. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie, or, same word again, repent, change his mind. He is not a human being that he should change his mind. I think this passage is brilliant at bringing out the difference between what it feels like for the people and what's actually going on. If you were an Israelite there and then, it would feel like God has changed his mind one minute and then the next, right? He's gone with Saul and then it's David and then what's going on? It looks like God's plan's twisting and turning this way and that. But from the perspective of God in eternity, he's only ever had one plan. And that plan was to give his people the fully obedient king they need, King Jesus. But in fulfilling that plan, when his people don't get it, he's happy to teach them. So when they come and ask for a king like the other nations, 
God does give them a king like that, Saul, for a while. He gives them Saul to teach them that their way is a disaster. But in his infinite kindness, God doesn't just give them the king they want. He always plans to give them the fully obedient king they need, King Jesus. This has been a challenging passage, I don't deny that. But I think its thrust is to point us and lift our hearts and minds to King Jesus, to delight in his obedience, to recognize what a good thing it is that God has given us a king like him. I'm going to pray, and then in a moment we're going to sing again. And as we do, let's reflect on the wonderful Jesus who was an obedient sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in your merciful kindness you don't just give us what we want, rather you give us what we need. Thank you in your wisdom you know we need a perfectly obedient king. We pray we would delight in him. And we pray that as we look at this difficult passage with Saul, we'll see how Saul fails to be what we need. But that failure would draw our eyes, hearts and minds to Jesus, the fully obedient. And that all will be done in his name and to his praise and glory. Amen.